See, this is great because this is our Spinal Tap Jazz Odyssey, you. And when you bring up Nice and Easy, I think of the hairspray, right? So, (laughs) You really don't know that song? Let's take it nice and easy. It's going to be so easy. We're going to fall in love. Hello, Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for the Bodines and former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is nine-time Grammy Award nominee, jazz singer Tyranny Sutton. We're going to talk to Tyranny about being Clint Eastwood's muse, going to Seder with Barbara Streisand, and whether this star of the jazz world was the motive behind a famous L.A. murder 30 years ago. So without further ado, let's go to the T.M.E.P. show! It really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not too much. There's too much perspective now. Alex, I'm going to say something right now that may damage our credibility with some, if not all, of our listeners. All right. What is it? I do not like jazz. Wait. Okay. Let's, that's too harsh. I am disinterested in jazz. And I'm not going to be one of those assholes that blames the art form and calls the people who love it pretentious. I'm the problem. It's me. I have no idea why. I mean, I consider myself a music lover. I think I have good taste. Why can't I appreciate an art form that is so obviously cool? Just to be clear, I have never confused you with being cool. So there could be something there. But anyway, continue. I didn't say I was cool. I said I have good taste. Those are two different things. (laughs) Um, Right, right. Okay. Why would I want to listen to a guy named Kurt Cobain when I could listen to a guy named John Coltrane, right? And there's stuff I like. I'm sure it's the most rookie list ever, but, you know, Sarah Vaughn singing Summertime, Billie Holiday's powerful performance of Strange Fruit, Everything Happens to Me, Chet Baker. And um, one of my favorite performances by any singer ever is Frank Sinatra doing One for My Baby at the Sands Hotel with the Count Basie Orchestra. I love that one so much. I paid a pianist to learn that arrangement so I could sing it at my daughter's elementary school in front of hundreds of other disinterested parents. Another shrewd career move. Another career move. (laughs) But, you know, I also, when it comes to rock, one of my five favorite bands ever, without a doubt, is Steely Dan. I don't know how Mm -hmm. they're perceived in the jazz community, but I think of them as being as good as anybody. But when all is said and done, you're never going to catch me listening to the instrumentalists like Miles Davis or Charlie Parker or or any of those other cats whose names well, escape me at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you totally nailed the family feud list of uh, jazz luminaries. So at least you got that down. Well, I mean, do you feel the same way? I've never heard you talk about jazz or refer to the asymmetric rhythms and pointy articulation of Thelonious Monk. Yeah. Well, thank you for throwing in a bunch of polysyllabic words right there, Alan. Just Felonious. To, it makes us seem a little a little more intelligent than we are. But you're right. We are in that same leaky boat together. My experience with jazz is fairly limited. I will say I did have the opportunity to see Count Basie perform live. What? Where? In the Beaver Dam, Wisconsin High School gymnasium when I was in 10th grade. Are you sure that wasn't Count Chocula? <laughs> I think you got confused with your cows. Yeah, the, the breakfast cereal of all Wisconsin children, especially uh, in that era. The jazziest but, breakfast cereal of all. Exactly. But no, I did see that. And I played the guitar in the jazz band in junior high school. My dad is a jazz fan and he loves the pianist Bill Evans. And so he has tried to push jazz influences on me and my siblings over time. But, you know, like you, it hasn't been something that I've embraced in in a meaningful way. And so I consider myself to be fairly clueless. Do you think it's weird though? I mean, we love music and this is a substantial art form 
you know, today we're going to have on one of the great jazz singers in the world, Tierney Sutton. And I'm sure we're both going to have to pretend to know many of the names she drops. Otherwise, it's going to get really embarrassing. I was actually looking online to see if there was a Jazz for Idiots book that I could pick up before this episode. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, Alan, we don't have time for your complete lack of perspective on this great American art form. Let's just get to our conversation with Tierney Sutton. But first, a short break. And now our conversation with a serious jazz artist who, according to the New York Times, takes the whole enterprise to another level. Tyranny Sutton. Tyranny is a dear friend of mine from Milwaukee. Hey. Hey there. We went to high school together. She used to pimp me out to all her friends. I don't think I would have gotten one date if it wasn't for Tyranny. Oh, I don't know. I'd like to take that credit. (laughs) You somehow did okay. Tyranny, you were like a a human OkCupid before the smartphone. Is that it? Yeah. And actually, we did forget the pinnacle of my fame. Alan, and you know what it is. Um, I thought we weren't going to talk about that. I thought you took <laughs> pills for that. <laughs> I thought you got rid of that. <laughs> what was it, no! Tara? Huh. The softball team. There was an intramural softball team that was named Tierney Sutton. Oh, yeah. Did you forget this? That was our team. This is literally the coolest thing that ever happened to me in terms of being famous. My best friend, Andy Commissars, had a lifelong crush on Tyranny. And he insisted he wouldn't play unless we named our team Tyranny Sutton. So it was like the Mets versus Tyranny Sutton. (laughs) I think that's just about the coolest thing that ever happened to me. Well, speaking of that, we lost all nine of our games. And you've (laughs) lost nine times at the Grammys, correct? Oh, yeah. Tyranny is like the Glenn Close of the Grammys. Wow. It's like, I mean, you know, it's like whatever. Nine-time Grammy nominated is so impressive. And then it you know, begs the question, like, what the hell does it take to win? I have never been disappointed because I always knew who was going to win. I'm never the famousest. Huh. But I'm also happy to say that in my field, it's always somebody that I really admire. It's never somebody that I think, oh, that person's a drag, you know. <laughs> was it Kenny never- G? No, it was never Kenny G. <laughs> yeah, unlike when um, Metallica was up for their very first Grammy in the heavy metal category, competing oh. <laughs> with Jethro Tull of all bands, and Jethro Tull won. <laughs> there was yeah. probably an, an insurrection after that. I, I wonder what Susan Lucci's score was on the daytime Emmys. Yeah, I think she was up to like 13 or 14 or something before she finally won. But again, the thing that's funny about it is that I'm not sure if it's better for my PR to say Grammy award-winning vocalist than to say nine-time Grammy-nominated vocalist. I mean, you know, and my agent said that it makes exactly no difference whether you win or not in terms of getting gigs and how much money you make. And I mean, it makes you feel good for a second, I'm sure. You know, it may be the case that actually winning a Grammy is overrated, right? So, do you know of the producer Daniel Lenoir, Canadian? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Produced a bunch of U2 albums. Mm-hmm. Anyway, for a while, he had an amazing recording studio in New Orleans called Kingsway. And it was an old Creole mansion kind of on the edge of the French Quarter. And he, I think he recorded a Bob Dylan album there, if I'm not mistaken. But it was this large place. The soundboard was in the living room. And people often stayed there while they were recording. If you were going around the house and you found a, a room or a hallway or something where you liked the ambiance or the timber of the room, you could run a line up there and set up a mic and you could record your part up there, you know? So a band that I was touring with had recorded their album at Kingsway. And when we were then on tour, we went back there to to hang out a little bit. And I was just exploring uh, the upstairs and I walked in this bedroom. I don't, I don't even remember the bedroom had any furniture in it, but it had these built-in cabinets and they were all empty. And I was just kind of looking things over And I just saw something glimmer from the back of one of these empty cabinets. And I opened it up and sitting at the back of a shelf, and it was the only thing in the whole cabinet, was Daniel Lenoir's Grammy trophy for the Peter Gabriel album, So. Wow. And I I sort of pulled that thing. I'm like, wouldn't you have this on the mantle or something like that? And I sort of delicately just put it back and closed the doors and, and got out of there. But I thought maybe nine time nominee is better than just that one little piece of metal and wood. This exactly came up when I was preparing for this. Your friend, Alan Bergman, the legendary songwriter, he and his wife, Marilyn, they wrote the lyrics to 
the way we were, among others. But I had to decide, should I refer to Alan as a three-time Oscar winner or the 16-time Oscar nominee? Right. What's more impressive? It's all really impressive. And when I go and hang out with them, their office has the Oscars on this thing, and they each got an Oscar. And so they've got six of them up there because they each got one for the three that they won. And they've got a Grammy that they won for Song of the Year for, I think, Nice and Easy. You know, let's take it nice and easy. That old Sinatra song, I think, was Song of the Year in like 1956 or something, like the very first Grammys. And so the composer of the song got a Grammy for Song of the Year. See, this is great because this is our Spinal Tap Jazz Odyssey, you. And when you bring up Nice and Easy, I think of the hairspray, right? So... (laughs) You really don't know that song? Let's take it nice and easy. It's going to be so easy. We're going to fall in love. Hey, baby, what's your hurry? Relax and don't you worry. You never heard that song? I think I've heard it. Yeah, see, I live in a very weird... I mean... Alan Bergman is is arguably my closest friend in this town, and he's 96 years old. And I talk to him almost every day. You know, when your closest friend is 96 years old, you get a very strange perspective on the world. <laughs> well, well, he's a young guy when he goes to lunch with Norman Lear and Mel Brooks. Yeah, well, he just wrote a brilliant parody with lyrics for Norman's 99th birthday. Oh, wow. And so wow. he called and, and read me that and... It was just brilliant, you know, just talking about his whole life and everything he's done. So let's talk about that. So there is an appropriate thing. You know, I'm Jewish and Tyranny, her first boyfriend was Jewish and her first husband was Jewish. So she's kind of Jewish. She's in the Jewish issue. Oh, yeah, I'm Jewish. My son is a Kaplan. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I was having dinner with him many, many years ago. And he was about five, I'd say. And we were out with an Israeli pianist that I work with, Tamir Hendelman, and a bunch of his Israeli friends came. And somehow it came up that my son's name was Ryan Kaplan. And all the Israeli guys were like, oh, that explains why her kid looks so Jewish. (laughs) There's this great anti-Semitic line in Spinal Tap after the band tries to pin the Stonehenge debacle on their manager, Ian Faith. And... (laughs) Ian defends himself by saying, and get ready for my bad British accent, there's no sex and drugs for Ian, David. While you're out living your rock and roll fantasies or whatever, I prize the rent out of the local Hebrews. Do you you know that one? (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about your Seder that you go to now. You go to a Seder at Alan Bergman's house. Right. Yeah. For many years. Talk about that because it's kind of elite company there. Yeah. The last couple of years, I mean, COVID kind of messed it up, but it's been their tradition to have the Seder every year and they rewrite the Haggadah, the ceremony, and add songs and stuff to make it current and talk about current events and all the rest of it. And so it's kind of a real cultural event. And so probably gone for the last 10, 15 years since I've been close with them. And the people that populate said event are their friends of many, many years. One year I I had to laugh because it was Quincy Jones, Peggy Lipton, Barbara Streisand, and current husband plus ex-husband. So Jim Brolin was sitting next to her, but Elliot Gould was there too. (laughs) Your stories about the incredible people that you've interacted with and had the chance to be in the room with and cheer meals and all that kind of thing. It's really fun. And um, my wife and I lived in LA. We were in West Hollywood. We lived in this very modest apartment building. And Richard and Robert Sherman, the Disney composers sure. who wrote the entirety of Mary Jungle Poppins Book. and it, It's yeah. a Small World and Jungle Book and all that kind of stuff, they rented an apartment in that building as their studio. Wow. So there was a little one bedroom apartment. And as it turned out, my wife's and my apartment shared a wall with that apartment. Wow. So one time, and I knew what his car looked like. I saw the car parked out front one day. So I just said, what the hell? I, I went and I knocked on the door and Richard Sherman answered. And I said, Mr. Sherman, I'm a fellow songwriter. Talk about hubris, right? Yeah, really, really. I wanted to just shake your hand and get some of that songwriting <laughs> mojo. He literally invited me in. We sat down. The walls were covered with framed posters of Disney films. They had a baby grand piano in there. He started telling me about working with Walt Disney and 
when they would go to visit Mr. Disney, he'd say, okay, boys, play it. That meant he wanted to play Feed the Birds. Uh, oh, boy. And it was really fabulous. And then another time, I was sitting in the living room of my apartment, and I heard from that piano, dun, 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 dun. Wow. And, uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's just one of those things where, I don't know, there's something about being in those scenarios where they're just these magical interactions where you feel so lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Sammy Nesico, one of the great, who just died last year at 99, something really, really old, who did all these great swing big band arrangements. And I gave me a bunch of Sarah Vaughn's arrangements from when she was with the Basie band. And he was like, sweetheart, you know, he had this Brooklyn accent, sweetheart, I was just wondering, I have some charts that maybe, I don't know, they could maybe they're not your style, but if you would want them, there are some Sarah Vaughn charts from the Basie band. I'm like, are you kidding? Of course. And he said, <laughs> well, I, I can't give you a send in the clowns because I gave that to Natalie, Natalie Cole. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, these guys are just, there is something pretty amazing about them. And it got to a point with having dinner with Alan in Maryland where I would take my phone and I would just turn it on during dinner and just record conversations, record stuff that they were saying, because I thought, I'm never going to remember all this. You know, and Alan's working on a, a memoir now, which is awesome because every other story is like, well, you know, when we went to Brazil with Gregory Peck and poor Andy Williams was there with his wife, Claudine Langer, who was having a torrid affair with Jacques Brel the whole time. I mean, just you like you cannot make this stuff up. And I'm just like, tell that again. Could you please tell that again? That truly is awesome. It is. And you just sit there and you just, whoa. You know, we're three Milwaukee rubes. Right. <laughs> For most of our lives, we didn't meet anybody other than Howard Garnett, <laughs> Albert the Alley Cat, the weatherman's puppet, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and as you said, I was your first brush with fame because I had that show on Channel 6 when I was a kid, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And now you move here and I'm right now talking in Carol King's old studio. Sherry Goffin wow. rented this home before we moved in. And when I came here to look at it, there was like Carol King's gold records and her Rock and Roll Hall of Fame award were all on these walls and there was a studio in the back. And so, yeah, it's just, it's kind of crazy. You just bump into amazing history here. Well, probably the best of these kind of stories with Alan and Marilyn is about six years ago. I got a call from their assistants and they said, um, Alan and Marilyn want to know if you want to come and have dinner on Wednesday. And I was like, oh, sure. And so I got there and there was a limousine out front. So I'm thinking, okay, who could this be? It was John Williams. He wrote Star Wars, okay, and the Olympic theme. Oh, those. <laughs> and they had known each other since the 50s when John Williams was known as Johnny Williams and was a jazz pianist and the rehearsal pianist for Buddy Rich who wanted to do a cabaret show. You know, he had his big band and he was a famous drummer, but he was a tap dancer. He wanted to be a hoofer and he wanted to have a cabaret show that he took to Vegas. So Alan and Marilyn were writing the patter and creating the show for him. And Johnny Williams was playing the piano and they became Wait, friends. Buddy Rich wanted to be a dancer? What? Well, he was a dancer. He was a tap dancer. And oh, I didn't know Yeah. That. And he was a halfway decent singer. He wanted to be a personality and he wanted to have his own show. And so they wrote this show together. So, I mean, just the stories. I just sat there with my, you know, talk about being a rube, just with my jaw on the ground, you know. They say the two best places to network here are your kids' schools and satyrs. You know, our, another mutual friend of ours, uh -huh. Aunt, Andy Bachman, is a rabbi in Brooklyn, and he sends me a video of him conducting a Seder at Russ and Daughters, the famous Lower East Side Deli. And I say, why are you sending me a video of you singing Dayenu? And he goes, look in back of me. And it's Elvis Costello and Diana Krall singing Dayenu. And so now he's friends with Elvis because of that. And I went to New York in 2019 and I met Elvis and Elvis set us up in the front row. Is Elvis Jewish? He dabbles. Oh, okay. Didn't you totally fumble that interaction with, with Elvis? 
Elvis to me is his first five records are no one tops that. He's my guy. I'm a musician because of Elvis. And I promised myself not to say that to him because he doesn't want to hear that. And as soon as I saw him, I go, uh, I'm a musician because of you. And that was just so, yeah, you can't, you you can't resist it. You can't resist it. But sometimes it's not the best idea. (laughs) I was out with Alan and Michelle Legrand, the great composer who passed away a couple years ago. And this guy who, I'm not going to say who it was, but a, a composer came up to him and said, you are the reason that I'm a Broadway composer. And Michelle Legrand said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and later <laughs> and later said to Alan, like in no certain terms, I can't believe I was responsible for that. Oh. And um, the first time that I met Keith Jarrett, this is a good one because he can be a little salty. Uh, who knows how he feels about it now, but he was a a bit of a fan of the band. And he said, your band is really great. And he's not known for being warm and fuzzy to people. And he said, keep doing what you're doing. But after he said that, he said, but I don't like to always say that because one time I said that to somebody and then they made a horrible, horrible record and I felt bad. Not that I think you're going to do that, but you know, he complimented me, but I knew the next time I see this guy, he may just tell me that I just totally suck. <laughs> I was sitting in Royce Hall next to somebody who said, yeah, I, I sent him some music from a, a young piano player. And he said, this is derivative. And the pianist was 12. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so you, sh- you just got to be careful in this world, you know? So we, you and I were talking about Spinal Tap and it, instead of like a specific scene, you were talking about how humbling their career is and how that rings true with you, correct? Oh, yeah. You would think that at a certain point, like maybe Grammy nomination seven, they might get my name right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Years ago. I went to do an outdoor gig in Santa Monica and I got there and there was this huge banner that they had put around the little plaza where I was singing and it said, legendary jazz and blues singer, Tinnery Switten. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even know, like somebody just pulled it out of their butt. That I have is so no you. idea where they got it. It was the best. And I took it. I have it somewhere to prove that it actually. Tinnery what? Tinnery Switten. <laughs> At least they could make up a real name, right? You know, but I'm, I'm legendary. Yeah, <laughs> Such a legend that we have no idea who you are. Right, right, right. Alan and I were talking about the whiplash. I call it gig whiplash. Uh, Mm -hmm. That quite literally, the night after we played at Carnegie Hall for the New York Pops, you know, I'm on the poster. It's like the whole (laughs) big thing. The next- Tinnery Swinton. (laughs) Exactly. The next day, literally, we're playing at a club in Dayton, Ohio, the entrance of which is in the Greyhound Bus Depot. And the guy that ran it was this troll of a guy that has now passed to the great beyond. And part of the contract was chicken box. That was part of the payment. And he was really annoyed with us because he'd never heard of us and he didn't think anybody was going to come see us. And we had a pretty good crowd because we were kind of having a little moment. And so there was enough press and whatever that we had a good crowd. But it really was like something out of a movie. That is really funny. I mean, it is <laughs> going back to the Spinal Tap Jazz Odyssey, <laughs> when Derek Smalls goes, well, here's what we got to do, Jazz Odyssey. And David comes back and says, we are not about to do a freeform jazz exploration in front of a festival crowd, right? And then they go out on stage, do the pan out, and you see there's maybe like, you know, 50 people out there or something like that spread throughout the, the bleachers. It's like, ah, you know, kill me. Well, and in my world, the humility is constant. I was just doing an interview last week, and someone asked me what my most fond memory was about the great bass player Ray Brown. Ray Brown is on 
a gajillion records. He was arguably the most recorded and famous bassist until he passed. He was married to Ella Fitzgerald for a while, but just a, a real force in our world. And I got to be mentored by him a little bit for a little moment because he was kind of an A&R person at my record label. And they asked me what my most fond memory of him was. And it was going to see him in the old Catalina's Jazz Club. There, there's the new Catalina's, but there was an old one on Cahuenga. And I was one of 12 people in the audience. Awesome. And it was a Tuesday night, and I'm watching him play. And the effort and passion that he played with, I remember he did a solo piece on the bass, and I remember him sweating profusely. And there was just no sense that he was disappointed, that he had an attitude about it, that he was just like, this is what I do, and I'm going to do it to the highest degree that I can possibly do it. And I thought, this is a stupid town. That's what I thought. So Clint Eastwood is a fan of yours and a friend. And in 2016, he got you to score his movie, Sully. Right. How did that come about? And that's a kind of funny, weird L.A. story because my ex-husband and I used to have a running joke about how I was seeping into Clint's subconscious because he was in rooms several times where I was singing and people would distract him and then he wouldn't notice it and whatever. And so there was always this sense, kind of knowing his taste, that maybe I might have a connection and that he might ask me to do something. And then one day, out of the blue, my friend Terry Trotter was friends with Clint's girlfriend, Christina Sandera, who's a, a pianist. And he just said, you know who's a big fan of yours? Clint Eastwood. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> and then he and Christina came to a, a show we were doing at Catalina's. And you guys probably know this from just doing performances in L.A. Like, there's famous people that come to things. But when Clint is hanging out, it's a different kind of thing. It's like there's a kind of fame that's like weird and ridiculous. Yeah. And Clint is that kind of famous. Like you can't go anywhere with him and have it not be weird. We went to a couple of times to this sushi restaurant in, in Beverly Hills. And he would take his old beater car, park it in the back, you know, and then we'd go in the back entrance of the place. And both times we went, to, went there, somebody in the restaurant tips off the paparazzi, yeah. Yeah. that Clint Eastwood is there. It's not taking pictures of him like paparazzi, paparazzi, but they come with a sheaf of photos of him and asking him to sign them, and then they sell them on eBay. And he's so sweet to these guys. He knows them by name. And he's like, oh, hi, Bill. And they're like, oh, hi, Christina, to his girlfriend and everything. And so we would go out there, and there'd be the, all these guys there, and he'd have to sign their little things and everything. And then we'd get in the car, and Christina's rolling her eyes. But he's like, just deals with it. And he's like, well, they got to make a living somehow. It's very generous. Yeah, he, he's actually always very sweet about that. So anyway, he came to Catalina's, and they were just all like, oh, Clint Eastwood is here. He's never here. And then he came back again the next night. And then after that, asked the band to come and do a little private concert for him, which we had done many years before when we did Monterey Jazz Fest. And then he just called me up one day and said that he was working on a, a film. And I sort of assumed that it was to use some music that we already had in the can or that he wanted us to write a little something for some little part. But in the end, Christian Jacob, my pianist and I, were brought to a screening room and they showed the whole film. And then afterwards said, so... And then quite literally, five days later, the band was in a studio doing the score. And we had gotten together and spotted the film and said, okay, well, let's try this here. Let's try this here. And it was very cool because Clint did it with us. And the producers didn't know what to make of this because they had never seen him do this. He just like, wa like wanted to be a part of everything. And he had written a theme that we were working with. What was the song that he wrote called? Was it uh, Dirty Harry Connick Jr.? <laughs> You're so weird. And he basically would say, oh, can you try that cue again and start it with just bass and or maybe have the drum and Tierney improvise something higher. It was very hip. It was really, really cool. It was this rarefied experience. You know, we've all worked on films and done little things here and there, but I don't think we'll ever have an experience like that again.
I got a really meandering segue into one of your stories. Ready? Okay. All, All right. right. What's that? So this is Spinal Tap was directed by the great Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner's done River's Edge, Princess Bride. He's also done Harry Met Sally. And he had a story once. He screened When Harry Met Sally in front of the British royal family. And he was very nervous during the fake orgasm scene because he was sitting next to Princess Diana. And she actually said later she loved it. And she said, I would have laughed a lot harder if everyone hadn't been around. So you have your own royalty story, not British royalty, but it's- Oh, okay. This is the king of Thailand was a jazz fan. Now, being a jazz musician is a very weird thing. In Hollywood, among famous people, there's only like two jazz fans. And now we don't want to talk about Bill Cosby, like he's done. So I said to Clint, you got a lot to do now because you're the only (laughs) jazz fan that isn't completely, you know. There's very few jazz fans, but people that are jazz fans, they're a little nutty. They're really passionate about it. And it turns out King Bumibol the king of Thailand, who was the longest serving monarch until his death, which was only about three years ago, was a big jazz fan. He was born in the United States. He was educated in the West, played clarinet. He also played trumpet and sax. So groups of jazz musicians would go over to Thailand to play the king's birthday. So there was a guy that was the official musical director and arranger for the king. The king wrote songs, and there was a great guitarist named Joe Beck who made an album of the king's songs. And and it was a really unlikely pairing because the style that the king really loved was Dixieland jazz. And so most of the jazz musicians that you think about, Herbie Hancock or Keith Jarrett or are not Dixieland players. It's this very old style kind of thing, you know? Well, that was the king's taste. So we were sent a list of songs that we would want to bone up on because after we'd do a concert, then we'd do a jam session with the king. And the king's a night guy. And so we were in Phuket in the the summer palace. And we'd get there at 10 o'clock. They'd give us a little meal. And then we would do... 45-minute set. And there were all these musicians, a sax player named Ricky Woodard, who was uh, one of the stars of the Ray Charles band, you know, modern kind of guy. There was a guy, Ed Pulser, who's a Dixieland trumpet player. So there was a handful of guys that played Dixieland, but the rest of us were just trying to fit into this kind of weird scene. (laughs) And so then after dinner and after the little show that we'd do, they set up this throne, basically, with all these pillows so that he'd be higher than us. And he's sitting there and he's got his three instruments to his right. And he's in heaven because this is the only time of year he gets to do this with really serious, good musicians. And then the audience is the richest people in Thailand who are trying to kiss up to the king. And they're trying so hard to look like they give a rat's ass about what we're doing. I mean, they're really trying, but they so don't want to be there. I mean, it's just the weirdest vibe that you can imagine. And then there's the culture of the jam session, okay? Well, then add to that the fact that we play different styles of jazz and that he's a king. So I remember this one, there were a bunch of horn players, and Ricky wanted to play a solo with nobody playing with him. So he says, I've got it. I've got it. And so he starts playing, and a couple of the other horn players are noodling behind him. He says, I got it. Then the king starts playing, and he says, he's got it. (laughs) And and the king starts playing. But And it was really weird because in Dixieland music, horn players solo at the same time. But in more modern jazz, that's considered weird and rude. You don't do that. So it was just a really strange thing. And I think I'm the only woman that was ever invited to do that. Is this an opportunity to remake The King and I as a jazz odyssey? I think there's something there, Alan. That's our next project. (laughs) I think so. Yeah, well, she's lucky she wasn't doing for Idi Amin because this band was (laughs) called the Revolutionary Suicide Band or something. My daughter was dating a jazz musician, and he sneered at any reference to rock music. But you, on the other hand, embrace it. You've put out two albums, one The Sting Variations, which covers Sting's solo career and The Police, right? 
Right. And the other one, After Blue, covers Joni Mitchell. How is that accepted in the jazz community? I would say it's actually very accepted. I mean, I think that's something that's a little different in the L.A. jazz community as opposed to some other jazz communities around the country and around the world. You know, my husband is French, and in France, there's very much an idea of like, this is jazz, this is not jazz. Even inside jazz, these are the bebop guys, and these are the modern guys, and all of this kind of thing. So I think in Europe, it's a little different, but I would say in L.A., and even in the general jazz scene, there is a sense that music is music. I have a lot of students that are not necessarily jazz singers, and my attitude is jazz is a set of skills that you can use to do whatever you want to do. It's not a style as much as it is skills that come from the improvisational tradition of the black church, that come from blues, that come from cool polyrhythms that come originally from Africa. I mean, there's a lot of things in the skill set of jazz, but I would say 90% of the musicians that I know that are serious are not interested in limiting themselves. But it's interesting because I used to be, when I first started singing jazz, I was kind of a jazz nun. I I wasn't really interested in cross-pollinating. I wasn't interested in listening to other kinds of music because growing up in Milwaukee, I had no exposure to jazz and I was kind of pissed about it. It it kind of annoyed me. And so when I was exposed to great jazz, I was like, wait a minute, this has been out there and no one ever played it for me. And now I look back on everything that I really liked that was on the radio, which is all I ever heard. And I realized all the jazz influence in Stevie Wonder, all the jazz influence in Steely Dan, all the jazz influence in all the things that got me the most that I was like, wow, that's really cool. But I didn't know what it was. And so there was a good 10-year-plus period where I didn't listen to anything but jazz, and I was very much the jazz police. And then I kind of got over it. And for Joni, it's funny because the first record that I became obsessed with of hers was a record that she did in 2001 called Both Sides Now with Vince Mendoza's orchestral arrangements and strings, and she's singing mostly standards with a couple of her own songs. And, you know, she's been smoking for years. Her voice is really gravelly and low. But it's it's like such great jazz singing, period. So I fell in love with her as a jazz singer and then went back and spent the next 10 years listening almost exclusively to her when I was on the road. So I went over all those records, Court and Spark and Blue and all of these things and just tried to get it in my bones so that maybe I could do something with it. But it was a real odyssey with her. In Wikipedia, it said, your band is an incorporated unit Mm -hmm. and makes all musical and business decisions together. And, you know, many bands have one or two people that make all the decisions and then kind of everybody else gets informed. And in that Metallica documentary, for example, James and Lars make all the decisions and, and the guitarist, Kirk Hammond, who's been with him for forever, kind of goes, yeah, I just had to show up and the decisions are already made, right? Right. How has that worked out in your band and how have you been able to keep that consensus orientation going? Well, I think for us, it's a, it's a little bit of a natural thing. I think jazz musicians, they're used to humility. They're used to not being appreciated for what they do. They're used to doing things for the sake of the music, and they're used to making other people sound good, and especially if they're studio musicians as well, which all these guys are. Their stock and trade is to go in and make other people sound better rather than, oh, this is me and I'm going to be the star, and each one of them is a virtuoso. Each one of them is really kind of a star kind of player. And, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is kind of strange, I guess, in this really individualist culture. But nobody ever comes up to me after seeing my band play and praises me and doesn't say anything about the band. It doesn't happen. Nobody. You know, they never come up and say, I'm such a big fan. You're great. See you later. They always say, wow, you guys are great together. Wow, what a band. Wow, I've never seen a bass player like that. Or wow, that pianist is crazy. There's always some mention of how great they are. And I think what 
we were able to do together was create something that would make everybody feel empowered. And they're all basically sane human beings. And they were like, wow, we did a cool thing. And we did something together that wouldn't have been as good if we were doing it without each other. And I decided in about 2004, 2005, that I wanted to make it some kind of fair thing, frankly, because I was giving them all the money and I wasn't making any. So I thought, if I bring them into this and they can see what this actually is, and then we can decide what's fair, and we decided to do it. And I love the fact that they have so much to offer, and I'm super grateful for it. You know, uh, I'm a Baha'i, that's my religion. And before every show, we say a prayer, and it says, Oh God, make of me a hollow reed from which the pith of self hath been blown, that I may be a clear channel through which thy love may flow to others. And jazz musicians always understand this, and I think all musicians really understand this. When you get in the zone and you're playing with people, and the balance is right, and you can hear everybody, and you can be influenced by them, and ideas happen, and you're not sure whose idea it was. You don't know if it was the bassist's idea or the drummer's idea, but some synchronicity happens and you do it at the same time, and it goes in this direction and everybody knows it's going to go there. And that is really a beautiful experience to have. And it's much more satisfying than doing the big virtuosic thing that you've been training to do and everybody goes crazy. And I think for me, I never had the huge voice. I wasn't, you know, Aretha Franklin. So whatever it was that I was going to create had to be done with a sense of subtlety and interaction with other people. And that's how I thrive. Rock bands break up all the time because some people don't understand the whole is better than the sum of its parts. Right. But I think that the reason that we were able to stay together in this world is that the stakes are so low. I mean, right. honestly, I don't know if I had become, you know, a household name and the band had become a household name, if we'd gotten really famous and done every one of Clint's movies and been Terrence Blanchard in band form. And, you know, I don't know if we would have been able to hold up in that. So I have like seven fans, but man, they're into it. They're deep, you know. I want to talk about one of your fans, Robert Blake. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't seen him much lately. Robert Blake was a TV star. He was in the great movie In Cold Blood, but then he also became a massive TV star in the 70s under Beretta. Beretta. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. You can't do the time. Don't do it. Don't do it. Tiny guy, tiny tough guy with a big bird. What was the bird he had? Like a macaw or something? Cockatiel. Cockatiel. So he ended up allegedly having his wife murdered after she dined at a restaurant here, which Michael Feinstein runs their, their right. theater. It's the last place I went to hear music. Yeah. Look at that. So Robert was a fan of yours. Can you describe a little bit about that? This is like the very, very early years when I first moved to LA. He was a bit of a jazz fan and I would haunt all of the different jazz venues in, in LA. And then I started to be friends with the musicians and they'd ask me to sit in and do a tune. And I started to get my little gigs. You know, this is the olden days. I think this was Send out cards in the mail days, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is pre-internet. This is like staple guns and telephone poles. Yes. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. I remember I was at a little place in Westwood, and and he would just like show up. (laughs) And so after he was arrested for murdering his wife, I think during the trial, somebody sent me a photo of the two of us, him with his arm around me. And written on the photo was motive. Tierney Sutton, where can people find out about you and what you're up to and that kind of thing? Well, they can find out at TierneySutton.com. And I have an Instagram. I think it's Tierney Sutton Music and Twitter. And, you know, I'm working on a new album that'll be out next year. And who knows? Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has really been a lot of fun. Tierney, I love you dearly. Right back at you. 
Alex, even though tyranny was one of my best friends in high school, I had no idea, not a single inkling that she liked jazz until I read about her in the New York Times like 25 years later. Hmm. And I can kind of understand it because back in the 70s, being a jazzer in Milwaukee was kind of like being a Bears fan. You just didn't talk about it. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. If you didn't want your house to get toilet paper and your car to get egg, you would never, never say you <laughs> you were a fan of the Bears in Milwaukee at that time. Yes. I don't know if you get egged for liking jazz, but that's, you know, beside the point. <laughs> but something I found out after our interview was that Tyranny and I shared the same dentist when we were little kids. Dr. Seymour Lefko, or as he was known, the jazz dentist. There was always jazz playing in the hip lobby. He had a really beautiful hip receptionist named Joan. Did he also do hip replacements? All his replacements were hip. <laughs> so then I did some research on him, and he's long since gone to the bird land in the sky. But he actually wrote lyrics to a Ray Brown song. He was a legit artist, not just the jazz dentist. And, you know, I think to this day, Milwaukee is hiding its jazz credentials because the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel came out with their list of the 50 most influential musicians in the history of the state. And Tyranny, with her nine Grammy nominations, was not on it. I'm not saying that there weren't legit names in there. There's Les Paul and Steve Miller, The Violent Femmes, Butch Vig, Liberace. But she easily should have made the top 10. Alan, you omitted the fact that Al Jarreau's on the list, right? So jazz actually is represented with a very credible artist, but that doesn't take away from the fact that we want to encourage our listeners to storm the Journal Sentinel building, just to make the point, or at least have a softball team named after her. Yes. Tyranny, Too Much Having Perspective is a production of Milwaukee Talkies, and it was our pleasure to speak with a fellow former Milwaukeean, Tierney Sutton. And hey, look, each of us have Spinal Tap moments in our lives, and you can watch Spinal Tap navigate theirs in This Is Spinal Tap on Apple Movies and Amazon Prime. That film is also available to rent on Redbox On Demand. In keeping with the jazzy theme of this episode, we recommend that you check out Spinal Tap's Jazz Odyssey. That clip is on YouTube. And it reminds us that humility is a virtue, especially when you find that your station life is being the opening act for a puppet show. Please follow, rate, and review Too Much Happy Perspective on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Pocket Cast, Overcast, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Instagram at TMEPshow, and our website is TMEPshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers... This podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. On behalf of Alan Keller and me, Alex Hoffman, thank you for listening. We're going to send you off with a song from my band, The Vainglorious, that I wrote after my girlfriend moved from Milwaukee to L.A., it's called More Than I Thought, and spoiler alert, it all worked out. She's now my wife. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. I sent you off on your own when you were 21 years old. You had things to do and life to be lived. You cried and said you wanted to stay, but I could see no other way. So I lied, said I had no more love to give. You packed your things, left in tears Because our time has wasted years You told me I'd miss you more than a lot You knew I loved you more than I thought Something and you'd show me when I was lonely that I'd see. And I'd be sorry on this, you would bet. 
But I did what I thought was right You need the chance to live your life You hadn't staked your claim in this world yet That night I went to bed And you weren't there The sheets were cold And your closet was bare For hours I lay awake As that night turned hot I think I love Thank you. 